Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The decline and fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century is a reminder of the potential fluctuation in fortunes of all states, great and small. Today I tell the story of Rome's last great victory on the battlefield, when the destructive armies of Attila and the Huns were kept at bay and prevented from overrunning Western Europe. Welcome to A History of Europe. Key Battles, The Battle of the Catalonian Fields, Part 1 of 3. By the beginning of the 5th century AD, the Roman Empire had enjoyed centuries of success as a great military power. Both the level of civilization it achieved and its longevity were impressive, but it had also evolved over that period. At around the turn of the millennium, the political system had changed from a republic with power invested in a senate to an empire under the rule of one man. The second great transformation was from paganism, that is belief in multiple gods, to Christianity, in large part thanks to the emperor Constantine the Great. The empire had faced many challenges, but had so far overcome them all. On its northern borders, it had met stiff resistance from Germanic tribes, and so established a border along the Rhine and Danube rivers, which had remained reasonably stable. In the 3rd century, it had to cope with a resurgent Persian empire, which had once seriously threatened the eastern borders, but in time was contained. At the end of the 3rd century, the emperor Diocletian, Realising that one man on his own could not run such a vast empire, devised a system of sharing power called the Tetrarchy, with four emperors, two in the east and two in the west. The Tetrarchy was abolished by his eventual successor, Constantine the Great, but after then, practical necessity led more often than not to the sharing of duties between partner emperors. The Germanic tribes during this same period, thanks to generations of close contact with Rome, were learning to adopt Roman customs. They switched from their previous semi-nomadic life and started settling in towns. This occurred at the same time as an agricultural revolution, which contributed to a massive increase in population. Levels of iron production likewise massively increased. According to the historian Peter Heather, the growing wealth of the region generated a fierce internal struggle for control and encouraged the emergence of a specialist military elite as the means to win it. 
This led to the larger political confederations, characteristic of the Germania of the 4th century. We no longer hear of most of the old tribal names from the age of the Battle of the Teutoborg Forest, since they had amalgamated into larger groups. In a stretch of land between today's northern Germany, across to the north of the Black Sea, lived the Goths, the Vandals, the Lombards, Alamanni, Burgundians, Swaves, Franks and Ostrogoths, among others. And around present-day Denmark lived the Juts, Angles and Saxons. Their leadership was hereditary, but loyalties frequently shifted according to the strength and charisma of individual chiefs. Separate tribes would often form alliances to help achieve common goals, but there was probably not yet a sense of pan-Germanic identity. Increasingly, they took part in raids on the empire, not simply for financial gain. Instead, their leaders were intent on gaining land and prestige within the empire. Before the 370s, any incursions without any imperial sanction were quickly countered and the offenders forced to leave the territory they had occupied. Sometimes, though, a barbarian tribe would come to some arrangement with the Romans. They might be allowed to settle an imperial territory in return for military support, or perhaps as reward for previous loyal service to Rome. Later, though, as dwindling Roman resources became less able to stop growing numbers of invaders, certain tribes were able to persuade Rome to allow them to stay and be granted the land they had already occupied in return for an alliance and an agreement to defend against any other tribes seeking to invade. In the 370s, a new group of people appeared from the steppes of Central Asia, the Huns, they were illiterate and left no written records, so we are dependent on our Roman sources. The 4th century historian Ammianus depicts them in very hostile terms as hardly human who live on raw flesh. As for their battle tactics, he says, quote, As they are lightly equipped for swift motion and unexpected inaction, they purposefully divide suddenly into scattered bands and attack rushing about in disorder here and there, dealing terrific slaughter. They fight from a distance with missiles having sharp bone, then they gallop over the intervening spaces and fight hand to hand with swords. End quote. According to Peter Heather, the main advantage the Huns enjoyed over similar steppe peoples was the development of a larger composite bow that could generate greater power than before. They could also effectively make use of lassoes to disable individual opponents. Mounted on swift horses, they attacked with lightning ferocity, all tribes in their path. On crossing the Volga, the first tribe who lay in their path were the Alans, a people who spoke an Iranian language and who were also excellent horsemen. Those who escaped subjugation or death fled to the west. The Huns' next victims were the Visigoths, a name given to a collection of Gothic tribes who had recently migrated from northern to eastern Europe. Ammianus described how the Visigoth leader, Athanaric, aware of the danger, led a strong army to the western bank of the river Dniestra, where he prepared for battle. But the Huns, taking advantage of bright moonlight, rode along the river to a suitable crossing point and launched an attack. 
Although losses were light, the Goths felt sufficiently threatened to abandon their leader and fled south to the relative safety of the empire. Roman sources state that 200,000 refugees gathered on the northern banks of the Danube. They were not only warriors but entire communities, desperately dragging along all their movable belongings. The Emperor Valens agreed to provide them with land in Thrace in return for military service and conversion to Christianity, and provided an army to supervise the crossing. However, once across in Roman territory, the dishonesty and incompetence of the local Roman commander provoked the Goths into revolt. After two years of inconclusive battles, Valens decided to personally lead an army against them. Despite reports that the enemy numbered 10,000, he did not wait for reinforcements, and the two sides clashed in the Battle of Adrianople on the 9th of August, 378. The Gothic cavalry, on their right wing, joined by a force of mounted Alans, crushed the opposing Roman cavalry. The Roman foot soldiers, in the middle, were therefore left unprotected and crowded together so closely together they could not wield their weapons properly. They were annihilated, the ground so covered with blood that the troops could not keep a foothold. The roads were blocked by the dying, and fallen horses lay in mounds. In the carnage the emperor perished, possibly struck by an arrow, and his body was never recovered. It was one of Rome's worst defeats in its history. The Battle of Adrianople was a significant blow for the late empire, resulting in the destruction of the main army of the Eastern Empire, as well as a terrific blow to its prestige, especially with the loss of the emperor. It was a battle that could have had a podcast of its own, since it marks the start of a reshuffling of Europe-wide power, which led eventually to the fall of the Western Empire. The northern barbarians were now a constant threat, and the empire needed to be more cautious with the use of its overstretched military resources. It risked being forced into giving ever bigger concessions with the various barbarians who wanted to settle in its territory. The problem was whether to try and block them at the borders, or give in to the seemingly inevitable, and let them in and integrate them into society. If so, the question was how this could be best achieved. The empire was weakened, but not yet on an inevitable path to decline. Up to then, its record of successfully merging different people's identities under a common Roman umbrella had been exceptionally successful. After all, few emperors had been purebred Italians, but none would have had any doubt that they were Roman. Emperor Theodosius the Great, who ruled the eastern half of the empire from 379, led a recovery of imperial fortunes with a mix of great military and diplomatic skills. He employed the fighting services of the Goths, whose chief was called Alaric. In 394, in the Battle of Frigidus, in modern-day Slovenia, Alaric helped Theodosius to remove an usurper of the western half of the empire at the cost of many Gothic lives. Theodosius was the last emperor of both the east and west of the Roman Empire. 
When he died in 395, he bequeathed the eastern half to one son, Arcadius, and the western half to his other, Honorius. It was still in theory one state, and the two halves would periodically cooperate, but from this time east and west started drifting apart. Rome was no longer the administrative capital of the Western Empire. It was still a big city of about half a million, though much less than at its height in the early empire. Since Constantine the Great, the emperors had chosen other cities to rule from. In the west, Milan, then Trier, and from AD 402, Ravenna, in northeast Italy, while Constantinople was the fast-growing capital of the eastern half of the empire. Here, Greek was becoming the lingua franca, instead of Latin. This represented a general widening of the political community that sidelined Rome and her Senate. The first crisis after Theodosius was the revolt of the Goths. Considerable debate and argument surrounds Alaric's position at this time, but he seems to have been growing increasingly frustrated. After years of providing military aid and the sacrifice of thousands of Gothic lives, the Empire still refused to grant his people a place to settle or give Alaric an official position within the imperial administration. Alaric came to the conclusion that the use of force was the only way to force the Empire to accept his demands. So he marched on Constantinople and confronted a Roman army but both sides were evenly matched and so resulted in a standoff. His army then went south into Greece, where they sacked several towns, including Athens, Sparta and Corinth. Court politics in Constantinople was highly volatile during these years. Arcadius never actively ruled, but was always surrounded by ambitious politicians seeking power through his favour. By 397, currently the most powerful of these courtiers, the eunuch Chamberlain Eutropius, was ready to negotiate. Alaric was made a Roman general, and the Goths allowed to settle in Dacia and Macedonia. The agreement, however, made Eutropius vulnerable to accusations of appeasement, and he was duly toppled in the summer of 399. His successors tore up the agreement with the Goths and refused to negotiate any further. Alaric now had to think again about how to persuade up one half or other of the empire to meet around the negotiating table. His followers demanded this of him, but he was stuck in a political no-man's land, literally and metaphorically, between the two halves of empire. In 401, Alaric headed west to try and force concessions from Honorius. Like his brother, he was a figurehead ruler, less than ten years old on the death of his father. The difference was that the political situation in the West was relatively more stable. The de facto leader there was now a general named Stilicho, the son of a Roman soldier of Vandal birth and a provincial Roman woman. Stilicho led an army against the Goths and defeated them in battle but was only able to push them back to Illyria. Over the next few years, a new wave of Hunnic migration into Central Europe again forced large numbers of Goths to seek safety across the Rhine. 
One consequence was a major invasion of Italy in 405 by a combined army of Alans, Swaves and Vandals. Stilicho desperately managed to scrape together enough soldiers to lead an army to also fend off this invasion, defeating the enemy near Pavia in 406. Stilicho had two aims. First, he needed to keep at bay the growing masses of barbarian hordes threatening to stream across the northern borders. Secondly, he had ambitions to reunite the two halves of empire under his rule. With a distinct lack of Roman soldiers available to him, he decided his only option was to ally with Alaric, the loose cannons still rolling around in Illyria. Stilicho promised to provide troops to Alaric in exchange for help in an invasion of the east. First, though, he needed to try and put down a rebellion in Gaul. In 407, the governor of Britain, who is known to history as Constantine III, had declared himself emperor. In response to calls for help from Gaul, he crossed the English Channel into Gaul with his legions, where he succeeded in securing the Rhine frontier from the barbarian tribes threatening to flood into Roman territory. In so doing, however, this action marked the end of effective Roman rule in Britain, since the legions would never return. Constantine went on to assume control of the whole of Gaul, setting up base in the city of Arles, near the mouth of the River Rhone. The troops, however, sent by Stilicho, failed to snuff out Constantine's usurpation before it gathered momentum. Meanwhile, Alaric was getting nervous, waiting for support which didn't arrive. In 408, reminding Stilicho, not unreasonably, that his forces had as yet received no financial, let alone military support, he demanded £4,000 of gold. Threatening war, if they were not paid, the Goths advanced to the Roman province of Noricum in the Alpine foothills. The emperor and majority of the senate were ready for war with the Goths, but this would have added a third enemy on top of Constantine and invaders across the Rhine. Stilicho persuaded them to pay up, but at the cost of every last piece of his remaining political capital. On the 13th of August, 408, encouraged by the rivals of Stilicho, the troops in Pavia mutinied. They killed many of Stilicho's supporters in the upper echelon of the bureaucracy. Stilicho himself sought sanctuary in a church, but later surrendered himself to certain death. He was decapitated on the 22nd of August. For 13 years he had survived as head of the empire during one of its most difficult periods. There aren't many individuals in history who would have been able to deal successfully and all at the same time with the challenges of the Goths, Vandals, Alans, Swaves and the major usurpation. Alaric was now back in the political wilderness, but in one respect he was soon to be better off. After Stilicho's death, the native Roman element in the army of Italy launched a series of attacks on any Goths happening to be residing in the peninsula. Outraged, they threw in their lot with Alaric, and so doubled his force to 40,000 by the autumn. Alaric gathered all his forces and headed for Rome, and by November held the city under siege and demanded gold, silver, silks and spices. In 409, Honorius acquiesced and agreed to negotiate. 
The sticking point was Alaric's demand for a generalship, but he eventually relented and accepted a modest deal of gold, corn and a frontier province for his people. But unrest reigned at Norius's court, with competing factions arguing for different responses to the Gothic challenge. No gold or corn was forthcoming, and then in 410, while waiting to meet once more to meet with the emperor, Alaric was attacked by a small Roman force. Outraged, Alaric had now had enough, and finally allowed his people to sack Rome, as they had been waiting to do for nearly two years. The sack of Rome, of August 410, was one of the most civilised the city ever witnessed. The Christian Goths, by and large, respected church property, but they helped themselves to large amounts of booty. It seems that Alaric was reluctant to have allowed the sack, but in the end gave in to the demands of his followers, and gave them a reward for their loyalty over the years. His main concern had been to gain official status within the Roman regime, and only went ahead with the sack when he eventually gave up hope on achieving this goal. It was another blow to the empire in terms of its prestige, but Alaric overestimated the significance of the city to an imperial authority in Ravenna, as Rome was no longer the political centre of the Roman world. The events of which the sack was a part did, however, have massive significance for the stability of Roman Europe. Even at this point, though, the empire did have a real chance of survival, Soon after the sack of Rome, Alaric died suddenly, and unexpectedly of a fever. The next year, the usurper Constantine III was assassinated, and in the following few years, a capable new strongman in Ravenna, Constantius III, took advantage of a period of relative calm to steady the ship. It was a brief respite, though. Not long after, the empire would face yet more great challenges. Please join me next week for part two of the story of the fall of the Roman Empire.